morning, Christ Community Church. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us this morning for our Lord's Day services. Uh, if you haven't already, you can grab a Bible and turn open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. While you're turning open to that passage, let me begin by asking you a simple question. What do you do when you are in danger? How do you respond when you are in danger? Now, obviously, the answer to that question is unique to everyone who answers it, but there is something we all share in common. There is something that we all do. Everyone has a physiological reaction when, to events that are dangerous. It's called the flight or fight response. See, it's part of our sympathetic nervous system. Uh, it's a set of involuntary actions that just kind of take control when we are in moments of crisis or danger. It's actually pretty neat. Um, I mean, it does a whole lot of things to your body, but for example, your heart, uh, the, your heart rate increases so that there's more blood flow to allow for more oxygen in your body for outbursts of energy, whether that is to fight or to, to run away. Uh, your pupils dilate, allowing more light, so your visual acuity allows you to scan the surroundings in your, in your environment. I mean, the only thing that's lacking is like steel claws coming out of your hand and laser beam eyes, but for the most part, you become a mini superhero in that moment of crisis. A flight or fight response is essential, we understand, for our physical well-being and safety. But you know what? I, I think it's also true that a finely tuned flight or fight response is just as essential and critical for our spiritual well-being. It's true for our physical well-being, but I also think it's true for our spiritual well-being. So let me ask you another question. What do you consider a danger? What is dangerous to you? We know how we respond when we face danger, but what is danger to you? Maybe driving on the freeways, vagrants, disease, Democrats, Republicans, you know, uh, poverty, wh whatever the list might be, what is danger to you? What about money? Do you consider money a danger? After all, isn't that exactly what Paul said in the passage that Jordan looked at last week? Now, we know that money is not the danger, right? Money is not the problem. As verse 10 tells us clearly that it's the love of money that is the problem. It's not the problem itself. In fact, the real problem, which was exemplified by these false teachers, is that our spiritual sympathetic nervous systems, our flight or fight responses, are broken. And this just isn't a problem for false teachers in the first century. I think this is a problem that we have today as well. What should scare us doesn't. What should make us want to run from something is often the thing that makes us run to things. Where we should fight, we don't. Where we should make a stand, we go AWOL. Paul, in our passage this morning, is being very clear about what a spiritual sympathetic nervous system looks like in a man or woman of God. Here's what you should flee from. Here's what you should take flight from. Here's what you should fight for. And we see that in our passage very clearly. In verse 11, Paul says, this is what the thing, these are the things that should make you take flight. And in verse 12, here are the things that should make you want to fight. So here's what you flee from. Here's what you fight. And then in verses 13 and 14, he follows up by commanding faithfulness in both of these responses. 
So let's take a look at them one at a time. What we take flight from in verse 11, right in there in the beginning. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now we know Paul is clearly contrasting Timothy and, and by way of application, all of us, uh, those of us who desire to be God's man or woman in verse 11, because he says that, you see that contrast, but as for you, O man of God, the contrast is with the false teachers that he described earlier in verse 4, right? That they were puffed up with conceit, they understand nothing, unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, they produce envy, dissensions, and just constant friction amongst people. Now, we read that and we go, whoa, these false teachers, they were a rotten bunch. I'm glad I don't know people like that, or at least I could never act that way. But, you know, if we're honest, or you just look at verse 4 and 5, uh, that, that, that list there, uh, they're conceited, they're puffed up, they don't understand anything, they're always fighting about words, and there's constant friction. That, that describes about half the people interactions you see on social media today, right? I mean, that, that's just the reality of it. It's a, it's a great depiction of what we see happening in our culture all the time. So if the negative commands are much more relevant to us with just a little imagination, then the positive commands should be just as relevant and let's look at what Paul says. He starts by saying, flee, take flight from these things. It's interesting, the word here for flee in the Greek language is the Greek word fuge, fuge. And guess what? We get our English word fugitive from that. A fugitive is someone who seeks safety in flight, someone who escapes a danger. And the idea that picture is that it pictures a man who is running from an assailant, someone who's trying to get safety from an assailant, somebody who's running from a plague, running from a snake. You, you get the idea. Years ago, when um, I was a youth pastor in the, the very early 2000s, about every, every year I would take my students down to the Melpomene Projects in New Orleans. And the Melpomene Projects was a pretty tough place, pretty, um, pretty impoverished. Things have changed since Katrina. They put a lot of money to change it. But back then, it was a really difficult and hard place to, to live. And so every year, we would go down and do ministry in those projects. And, and a lot of what we would do is clean up lots or try to rehabilitate homes. And I remember um, on, on probably more than one occasion, you know, and you've done this too, if you've ever had to rehabilitate a home, right, or do a Habitat for Humanity, or just kind of do some deep cleaning, you lift up that inevitable board, and, and, and you tip it, and you end up exposing like cockroaches and spiders, and in this case, we had some mice and rats, and all these things scattered, and guess what? Bam! Everybody split, right? It was this fugue of fleeing. It was, it was almost a, a panic, irrational, panic-induced impulse to just run, without thought or, or consideration to your path, right? So people tripping over paint buckets or banging into each other. That is the impulse to flee right there. So, so with that, that picture in our mind of, of what, it is, what, what fleeing is, the question then becomes, what is it that we are to take flight from? And, and if you've li listened to sermons and you've kind of grown up in the church, you're already probably thinking, well, we, we should flee from sexual immorality. We should flee from idolatry. We should flee from the things that Paul, how, how he described the false teachers in verse 4. And, and those are true. Those are definitely things we ought to flee from. But in the context of what uh, is being written here, Notice verse 9 and 10, the, the, the antecedent to these things is cleared out, sp clearly spelled out in those verses. So when Paul says flee these things, the antecedent to that is verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Paul is saying this love of money, of gain, of greed, of, of I love the old King James translation, filthy lucre. Right? Just, to flee filthy lucre, greed, and, and all this desire uh, and, and the corresponding discontent with your station in life, and you want more. Paul commands us to take flight from the danger of the love of money and materialism and to just have more and more stuff. This has something to say to us, who, those of us who live here in South Orange County, doesn't it? Where there is a, a constant temptation to, to chase the affluent life or to give the image that you have the affluent life by either things or experiences, and, and, and social media doesn't make it any easier. And so we're tempted to, to follow after these things rather than flee from them. And, you know, I find the Bible continually, continually challenges our assumptions, and it does so again right here. What we think or we say is dangerous, the Bible often doesn't. And what it says is dangerous, we don't. You see, our, our spiritual sympathetic nervous system, our, our instinct of flight or fight is broken. Now again, I just want to be clear, there is nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with having material goods, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. But when money and material goods and, and, and stuff have you, it's terribly wrong. It's terribly wrong when they have you. And sadly, many people don't even know the difference. They don't know, is it, is it that they possess these things or do these things possess them? It's a real important question to ask yourself. Do you know the difference? Do you have things or do things have you? So that is what we should flee, the danger of greed, money, selfishness, the, 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 I, the I want what is mine now kind of mentality. That's what we should flee. And Paul also says how we should take flight, right? And the way we do this is found right there in the second half of verse 11. Follow after these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You see, taking flight and following after are two sides of the same coin, isn't it? As quickly as we flee from one corrupting influence, we are following after another renewing influence. When you're fleeing, you're following. When you're following, you're fleeing. They go hand in hand, and to stop one is actually to stop both. So when you stop fleeing or, or when you quit pursuing the things that are in front of you, like righteousness, holiness, godliness, love, faith, those things, the things, when you stop pursuing that, when you stop following it, the things you're fleeing from, sin, love of money, one of the vices or whatever that might be, they overtake you and the very thing you're trying to get evades your grasp. And so you have to be doing both of them simultaneously. And notice what Paul calls us to follow after, those six attributes or those six elements, and they can be grouped into three groups of two when you look at it. So let's look at it right now. The first group of two is the first two we see in the list, righteousness and godliness. So imagine that this speaks to the upward dimension of our lives, right? Our relationship with God and righteousness. What is that? Don't confuse it with the imputed righteousness that we have from Christ. Don't confuse it with kind of a description of, of who we are. We are righteous. That's not what's going on. That's not the idea of righteousness here. And most times in the Old Testament, if you read in the Old Testament, that's not the idea of righteousness there either. As much as it is 
one who acts rightly. It's describing the kind of acts that make up your life. You do what is right with God in, in respect to God and with man. It's not a description of, of so much of who you are, but we do have that sense in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But this righteousness is a description of what you do. It is these external acts of obedience. And the second pairing there is godliness, right? This is kind of the internal counterpart of righteousness. If righteousness describes how I behave, godliness refers to the motivation, the internal orientation towards the Lord. It it comes out of a, a, a worshiping heart that desires to reverence God and honor Him. So these first, this first coupling, righteousness and godliness, have to do with God, acting in a way that God would act, because doesn't Jesus say that? Those, if you love me, you obey my commands, right? John 14 and 15, it's, it's amazing, this, this constant interaction between the love of God and the love we have for God and our obedience to Him. And then godliness is that inward orientation, the internal co- counterpart that is the motivation for our righteous acts. So that's our relationship with God. Notice the second two, faith and love. These two speak of the inward dimension of our own selves, right? So faith and love talk about the kind of animating principles of what motivates Christian obedience. And faith, and, and these terms are not anything you don't know. Faith is just simple confidence in God. It is trust in God's plans and power and provinces and provision and purposes, And the Bible tells us that faith can be a gift, that some of us can have the gift of faith, but it also says that it's something that we can cultivate. It's something that you can grow in. If you find that you're struggling trusting God's provision and His plans and His his purposes, you can grow in faith. Paul, uh, speaking of Abraham in Romans Romans chapter 4, said that Abraham grew in his faith. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, he, he was such, filled with such gratitude because as a group of Christians, they were growing in their faith. They were growing, cultivating an ability to trust God in, for provision, for his, in His purposes. And, and, and what better time to do that than in times of crisis and trial, right? I mean, you don't have to trust God's provision when you're well provided for all the time. You don't think about it. But when provisions are lean, you need to lean into your trust in God, faith in God. And the second aspect is, second word is love. That's a common one if, you're, if you've been in the church a while. It's that, that famous agape, love of choice, love of volition, right? It's that unrestrained, unrestricted kind of love that this too can be cultivated. Matthew chapter 22, 37 to 39, Jesus says that, that that's the greatest of the commandments, loving God, loving others as well. And, you know, this past week, uh, Jesus did a fantastic seminar on emotions, just kind of tapping into the reality that we can cultivate godly emotions and we can fight against ungodly emotions. Let's look at the third pairing. We looked at righteousness and godliness, faith and love. Let's look at the last pairing here, steadfastness and gentleness. So, if the first two spoke of our upward orientation with God, right, and the second two talks about what animates us internally, these last two, steadfastness and gentleness, speaks of our outward orientation, our relationship we have with others. So, in these six attributes, Paul's covering all of it, our reality with God, our reality internally, you could say our kind of our our psychology, and as well as our reality and relationships around us. And he begins with steadfastness, and, and, and this can mean many things. Right? If you think about the word, it just means solidness, uh, patience, fortitude. 
You know, often in the Bible, it's like uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about being steadfast, persevering in good works, just being at it. Even if you don't see the reward or the result immediately, you just are steadfast in doing good works. In 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, Paul uses it of enduring persecution, being steadfast, having fortitude when there's persecution coming towards your life because of your faith in Christ. Uh, in, in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul uses the same word of, of having fortitude and trusting in Christ's return, that He will come back. So, the steadfastness is that, that you, you can persevere amongst the people around you, particularly because, as we've been learning in Timothy, our life in Christ will cause a reaction, and oftentimes that reaction is not positive, but you can be steadfast. Equally important, maybe more so, is the second attribute there, gentleness. You see, that's the last one. What an important trait for any Christian. What an important trait for Timothy. You can imagine how, how tempting it must have been for Timothy to, to want to just respond with either harsh indignation or maybe an authoritarian anger towards these false teachers who were sowing seeds of discord and wrecking the church. You can imagine how Timothy wanted to just lay down the law, yet Paul commands him, to gentleness. Even though he had the right, probably the right and authority and obligation to, to straighten things out, that's why he was put there, he's also to be gentle. That doesn't mean you're gentle all the time. Sometimes it calls for firmness, right? Sometimes correcting error calls for kind of getting in someone's grill. I talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. But as a general rule, be marked by gentleness. You know, Isaiah the prophet, when he was speaking of God's choice servant, referring to Jesus, in those um, servant passages of Isaiah in the 40s. Uh, in Isaiah 42, the prophet writes this, a bruised reed, speaking of Jesus, Isaiah writes, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's, a, that's just a beautiful picture of Christ. Isn't it good to know that's how Christ is? In, in other words, he's saying, something so fragile, like, you know, you see the wheat fields and the one that's bruised and it's limped over, he is so gentle, he, he won't even tear that. He is so gentle that a candle, you've seen it, it's just barely flickering, just, and it's gone. Just barely, it won't be quenched because he's gentle that way. And, and, and that's, that, that is the six attributes that we are to follow after. And in following after that, it will develop in us the, the spiritual, sympathetic, nervous response, the involuntary response to flee from these other things when these are developed. So, so that's half of our spiritual sympathetic nervous system, the flight response, right? And like our, our physical sympathetic nervous system, it is an automatic involuntary response, and the way you develop it to be automatic and almost involuntary is by following after these attributes. But that's only half of it, right? There's the flight and fight response. And so we move into that. We see that in verse 12 where Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. And to be clear, it's not a contradiction to speak of fighting after we just spoke of godliness, love, and gentleness. It might sound like a contradiction, but it's really not. You see, it's a common mistake that people will interpret godliness and gentleness and love with, with passivity, mildness, and weakness. But friends, the Christian life is anything but that. 
the Christian life, in fact, will bring you the peace that you need and the peace that you seek. But as a part of that process, it will involve you in battles that you cannot, in fact, you must not avoid. In fact, if I can kind of put it almost paradoxically, the way that you will receive that peace that you need and that you seek is when you are engaged and you have victory in the the new war you're brought into. That's exactly it. That the way that that peace is made, is maintained, is achieved, is through victory in this new war that you've been called into. It is a war against sin. First and foremost, it is the sin that is residing in your own heart, your own sinful tendencies. Secondly, it's the sinful actions around you. And then third and finally, it's the sinful world system that you, we find ourselves in. That's the new war. That's the new war we've come into. And peace is only secured when that war is won. Paul wrote to Timothy in in the next epistle, 2 Timothy 2.3, he said, Timothy, uh, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. To the Corinthian Christians, Paul wrote this, the weapons of our warfare have power to destroy strongholds. Right here in, in 1 Timothy 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. That word fight is where we get our English word, agony, agonizomai. This is where agony comes from. It talks about the, the strain and what it takes, the, the effort that's put out, that it's, oh, it's an agony. It describes a soldier or an athlete's discipline. And then Paul uses another combat metaphor right here, take hold, right? This is an allusion to grappling, right? It's a grappling technique. You grab hold of it, you bring it down, and you hold on to it until it submits to you, right? It taps out. That's what Paul's talking about here. But what do we fight for? Very important question. Are we to fight against political injustice? Are we to fight against immorality or immoral laws? Are we to fight against child abuse and poverty or AIDS or homelessness? Yes, We're supposed to fight all those things, the the immorality that's around us, the the actions. We we, we should fight against those things. We should fight against sin and its consequences, but not before we fight for the most important thing, and that is the fight that redirects our hearts from sin and self to Christ and His gospel message. That's really important. It doesn't matter if we fight against all the wrongs out there if we can't fight or take hold of the redemptive life we have in Christ in here. And that order is so important. See, too many Christians try to fight the cultural wars without having won the spiritual battle that's raging in their own hearts. And you've seen this, and a lot of times because that happens, they come off sounding very angry and and defensive and and sometimes self-righteous because they think that the real problem that they have to fight against is the sin around them when they don't realize that the real problem is first the sin inside of them. Until you fight that battle, you are not in a place to fight any battle. And so that order is so important. Now, by the way, the way you fight the good fight of faith this is kind of a tricky thing here. The way you fight that fight is the same way you flee these things that Paul just talked about, is by following after those six attributes. So by pursuing, by following after those six attributes, we're simultaneously fleeing from things and fighting for other things. And that's why those six are so 
important. Well, friends, that's, that's the spiritual sympathetic nervous system that Paul wants us to know about, what our real flight and fight impulse should be. And Paul concludes with a final command to be faithful in our actions regarding both of these. Let me read to you verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, keep the commandment. And the commandment there is referring to the kind of entirety of the Christian life. Keep this unstained and free from reproach. See that in verse 13 and 14? Well, how long are we supposed to do this? Because that, that's, a, that's a pretty high order. Well, verse 14 says, until Jesus comes back. Be faithful in your spiritual sympathetic nervous system. Be faithful in what you, your, your flight and fight response is until the day Jesus returns. After all, look at these titles he gives to God in verses 15 to 16. He's the only sovereign king who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. Do these things, but after all, isn't that the least we could do? Amen. Here's a problem, though. If I end the sermon here, which people might think that that's the end of the sermon, that would not be good news to any of us, would it? And primarily because, because if you're a Christian, I haven't told you anything you don't already know. And if we just end here, you may go home or you may, you know, you may be done with some good biblical principles, but that's about it. And if you're not a Christian you're not getting a good idea about what Christianity truly teaches us. If all you hear, and I can understand why you would hear this, is, hey, you got to try harder because that's what good Christians do, well, what's the point? I mean, you could do that on your own. Good, good Buddhists, good non-Christians, good people do this all the time. So, you might conclude that the Bible is saying here very clearly in 1 Timothy 6 that we should run from these things, you know, the love of money, the lust for more, the discontentment that goes along with all that, because that's what causes the ruin of so many. And you might agree completely with that. But you could also conclude, well, I don't need Jesus to do that. I agree. I don't need Jesus to help me do any of those kinds of things. But that is not the real danger we should fear. It is a danger. Paul says it is a danger. But that's not the real danger we should fear. You see, the real danger is that we want these things to begin with more than we want God. In other words, friends, the reason we love money too much, the reason we love material goods too much, is because we don't love God enough, or maybe not at all. So you could change on your own. You could, as a matter of fact, Jordan talked about this whole movement. Last week, he talked about this whole movement called the minimalist movement, where people are rejecting this, this overabundance of materialism, and bigger is better, and more and more, and they're just paring down their lives to just such simplicity, such, such Spartan necessities, and, and they're living that life. They're rejecting the very thing Paul's saying, run away from. They're running away from it. But you see, that won't solve the real problem. Because the real problem, as, as verse 10 says, isn't money, isn't things, isn't stuff, isn't abundance. That's not the real problem. The real problem is we don't know what we should fear, and we don't know what we should fight for. Our ability to discern is, is broken. And friends, you, you cannot 
you can't outrun that. You can't fight and win that fight. And even if you could outrun or, or fight those tendencies, the fact of the matter is we simply won't because unlike our physical sympathetic nervous system, our spiritual sympathetic nervous system is broken at the core. So the things we should run from, we run to. And the things we should fight for, we fight against. You see, we're, we're not just a little off kilter and all you need is a, is a little moral push in the right direction and that will fix us. Friends, that, that's just moralism or re- religious thinking. We have to realize that the system itself inside of us is broken. And you see the evidence of our broken flight or fight system or responses everywhere. People who seem to sabotage their relationships constantly. People who torpedo their lives daily. People who make choices that they know will bring disaster but somehow can convince themselves otherwise. The Bible says our flight and fight system was corrupted by sin and it no longer works like it should. So we embrace things that are wrong and we turn away from things that are right and we do it all the time. Friends, nobody wakes up one morning and says, I want to throw away my career through some destructive behaviors, but it happens. Nobody says, I want to destroy my friendships with my constant moodiness or, or sinful neediness, but it happens. Nobody says, I want to just flush my marriage down the drain by cultivating bitterness or self-pity or whatever, but it happens. Because we don't know what we should fear and what we should fight for, we sabotage, torpedo, flush our lives down the drain. And friends, you can go on long, you can only go on so long that way before finally the wheels of your life come off. Friends, the Christian hope, the gospel, Christianity, it's it's not about that we somehow by our own brute strength of will or our, our sheer desire can become a man or woman of God, that somehow we can fix our flight or fight response by our own efforts. See, the answer to our brokenness is seen in the very life of the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of that title that opens our passage, the man of God. The man who is completely God's in every single way. It was Jesus who fled from every temptation to money, to power, and the riches of this world. So that he he turned them all down so that you and I would inherit all those riches and so much more. It was Jesus who pursued righteousness and personified godliness. It was Jesus' life that was marked by faith in his Father and love for others. When tempted to escape the cross, he showed steadfast commitment and even asked the Father to forgive those who had crucified him and put him there. It was Jesus who fought and conquered sin and the grave so he could give us eternal life and in so doing, fix our broken spiritual sympathetic nervous system responses. See, Jesus fixes us by making us right with this sovereign king. Jesus turns us from being rebels into subjects, even more, into sons and daughters. 
It's Jesus who allows us to share in God's immortality through the eternal life He gives to us. It's through Jesus that we can boldly approach the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And until we see Jesus as the true and the ultimate man of God, we cannot know, uh, we cannot know what we, excuse me, until we see Jesus is the true and ultimate man of God, we cannot do what we know we should because we don't even know what we should fear and what we should fight for. See, when we realize that's because of Jesus and it's only in Him that we could ever hope to have our, our spiritual sympathetic nervous systems fixed and working again, our hope is not in us fixing ourselves, but in him, Jesus fixing us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace that we have in the gospel. Lord, and though Paul is writing to us to become a man of God, to become a woman of God, and, and he sets forth a path and a trajectory to do it, we know that because of sin, our spiritual sympathetic nervous system is shot. And so, Father, while we read what we read in the, in the pages of the Bible and we say, that's what I want, we also recognize apart from you and your enabling grace, we could not do it. And so, Lord, as we look to that, we don't look to our own uh, uh, moral strength or our own kind of track record. We look to Christ. And Father, we, we want to follow after Him. Father, He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we thank You, Lord, though we may fail time and time again, we can be restored because of Him. And we'll thank You. In His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.